Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, come before your throne of grace this evening, and we are thankful that we can assemble together for this time of study in your word. Father, we just pray as we approach this, uh, this subject that this will be a time of fruitful understanding as we seek to make sense of this uh, subject. Uh, Father, we just pray that we will be challenged by these things, that we might grow thereby. Father, we promise this evening to give you all the honor and the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I must confess, this uh, subject I've been studying for the last few weeks, and I've actually studied it several times over the years, it has been and continues to be uh, a difficult subject, only because it's nuanced in some ways. And I want to hit some of those nuances tonight as we get into this subject of, uh, of it really has to a large degree with loving our enemies, you know, and what does that look like and what does that not look like. So uh, I've titled tonight's message, uh, Let God Repay Those Who Mistreat You. Let God Repay Those Who Mistreat You. Now, the reality is, is that we live in a fallen world. And we know this uh, because the scripture reveals that since the fall of Adam and Eve, uh, Satan has been the ruler of this world. In fact, three times, and I'm talking about in a, in a limited way because God is the sovereign, he's the ultimate ruler, uh, but he allows Satan to function temporarily as the ruler of this world. Three times in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 describes him as the god of this world. Uh, Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. Uh, 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12 uh, tells us that Satan is one who has weakened the nations. And Revelation 12.9 tells us that he deceives the whole world. And this speaks of the scope of his influence. Another passage that we have looked at uh, is in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus describes the current state of the world. And that is that we live in a world that is divided between believers and unbelievers, what the scripture calls the wheat and the tares. And so we live in a world that has this natural split to it. And God's word gives us this insight. It, it helps us to understand this reality, this current state of affairs, we might say. Now, uh, we also want to understand that there are things going on in the invisible realm, uh, with regard to Satan and demonic forces that impact the world in which we live. Uh, and not only with regard to influencing human behavior, because we looked at a passage here a few months ago, like in Revelation chapter 16, <clears throat> which describes uh, three evil spirits at the, uh, at, at, at the second half of the tribulation who are going to go forth to call the, the kings of the world to gather their armies to gather, uh, together. Uh, for the Battle of Armageddon. And that's very intriguing that you would have uh, demonic forces at work in the political arena. <clears throat> and, of course, one reads through the book of Revelation and you realize that a lot of what is going on with regard to God's judgment upon the world is going to be impacted, is going to be delivered through his holy angels who are going to affect... Uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth itself. There's going to be great uh, geophysical uh, disturbances on the earth because of what these angels are going to be doing. And so it's very fascinating to think about what goes on in the invisible realm and how that touches us here. But 
understanding that construct that the Bible gives us, that insight into that reality and understanding how, how the world works and why there are certain forces at work. And to be aware of this is very helpful for us. And so as we look into this subject tonight, we're going to see how we are going to be dealing with attacks that are going to be coming from people, uh, by and large, who belong to Satan's kingdom of darkness. Now, we know that at the moment of faith in Christ, a person is transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We know that that transference occurs at the moment of faith in Christ. And yet there will be many, in fact, the majority of people in the world will not turn to Christ. And so they will be part of Satan's world system. They will be part of Satan's world system. And so there will be enemies that we will be dealing with in this world. It's just, it's just part of the landscape of this world that we live in. And so I think about, okay, well, if, when I'm mistreated, how do I, how do I handle that? And it's important that we should understand that we are to respond and not react. And we are to respond by learning God's word and living his will. Uh, and tonight we're going to touch on that. But we also want to understand that as we uh, put the matter in the Lord's hands, when we are mistreated, when we conduct ourselves according to his directives, when we behave as the Lord directs us to behave, not only does it honor him, not only does it edify us, but it also puts these other people in the Lord's hands and allows him to deal with them in his time and his way. Now, I'm anticipating where I'm going with this this evening, so before I get too far ahead, let me just go ahead and jump into the notes here, and then we'll be chasing down a lot of scripture along the way. So, when someone hurts me, and there are people who have hurt me, and I expect to be hurt again in the future, it's just the world we live in, when someone hurts me, I sometimes react and feel the need to seek revenge. That is, to take the matter into my own hands and hurt the other person, so that I feel the scales of justice are balanced. Revenge starts with a mental attitude in which we seek to harm an offender for the injury or offense they caused, whether that injury or offense is real or imagined. The desire to retaliate against the offender is generally followed by an action to hurt them, whether that hurt is, is physical, psychological, emotional, social, financial, or even legal. The desire for, re for revenge can be coupled with very strong emotions that can actually help inflame the injustice in our mind as, re as we relive it over and over again. Uh, which can eventuate in mental bondage as we keep recalling the hurt. Also, an injured person may feel helpless and victimized by an oppressor, so hurting the other person can make one feel empowered. It is true that personal revenge can offer a temporary sense of closure or satisfaction, but it can also establish a pattern of behavior that can be exhausting and endless as we feel the need to retaliate against all perceived offenders. And so God's word speaks to the issue of dealing with offenders who cause hurt, uh, giving directions on how we are to respond. Uh, I'll share with you a, a personal story here a few years, uh, a number of years ago, I was hurt quite terribly uh, by a supervisor uh, who repeatedly lied to me about certain issues 
and in many ways was a bully in how she conducted herself. In fact, she was that way with really all, all of the staff. And she really caused a great deal of psychological and emotional disequilibrium and damage uh, in the lives of people uh, that she sought to influence or, or bully. And it was really quite tragic to see, but, but the damage uh, was very real psychologically and emotionally. And I saw how some people uh, reacted to that. Some people sought to flee that by, by quitting. Other people sought to retaliate in kind. Uh, and even though I dealt with a certain amount of hurt uh, as a result of, of, of her actions, uh, I was very, very careful to frame it from the divine perspective and to operate on faith and not feelings and to do my best to rise above the hurt and to try to conduct myself nobly and to, and to carry myself well and again to respond in faith and, and, and not hurt feelings. And so it became very intentional for me uh, to, uh, to pray for her to seek to bless her, to seek to do good to her, even though that was not the rules that she lived by, that was not the values or ethics that she abided by. And so for me, because the hurt, it was very easy for me to replay scenarios. And you know how it goes in your mind. When you start replaying a scenario, it's like a little mental storyline that we construct in our head where we have actors and, and players and, 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 we, and we, we play out a script, you know, and so we think about past hurts and that can, you know, allow us to get caught up in this mental drama. And emotion, as I've said before, emotion is very dumb <clears throat> and... It, it's the best way that I know how to describe emotions because emotions never operate on their own. Emotion follows thought like a trailer follows a truck. It, it never operates on its own. So when I feel a certain way, I know I'm thinking a certain way. And so when those hurt feelings would start to rise up within me, I knew it's because my thoughts were getting away from me and I would have to engage in mental discipline. Second Corinthians 10.5 says that we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So I would have to identify that thought, lay hold of that thought, isolate that thought, recognize it as being aberrant, as not healthy, uh, and then I would have to uh, insert God's Word into my mind and make that the base of operations rather than the hurt. And so it's one of those things where if I don't like the record that's playing in my mind, I take that off and I put another record on. Because I have to manage my thoughts because as I think, so I live. And that really should be the basis for how I live out the Christian life. And it really should be wisdom and God's Word that is guiding me, not hurt feelings. And so that is one of those challenges that we deal with. But for me, that was a real-life test situation. It was a real-life scenario where I was able to take this very poor behavior uh, from this other person that was very damaging and very hurtful uh, on her part and very intentional on her part, uh, I might add, and not react to that as I saw others do, which I thought was very, very poor behavior because it didn't resolve anything. And so... It got to the point to where uh, I had to make sure that I was being governed by God's Word, that I was operating by faith and not feelings. <clears throat> so these become, this becomes uh, actionable uh, for us as believers. Now, with regard to how we are to respond, first, uh, I want to set forth that there is a positive directive, a positive directive concerning how to treat the offenders. 
And here I'm taking this from the words of Christ in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, where Jesus said, I say to you who hear, and he sets forth four directives. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. And so that becomes the marching orders for the believer. Now, as Christians, we live in a fallen world, and that's why I was talking earlier about understanding what's going on in the invisible realm and also understanding that we live in a world that is divided between believers and unbelievers. So we live in a fallen world and are surrounded by fallen people who often unknowingly help advance Satan's agenda. Now, these fallen people are identified biblically as our enemies. That's how they're identified. Uh, And these operate by the mental attitude of hatred. Uh, You know, Jesus implies here, states that they openly curse us and will mistreat us if given the opportunity. Now, being an adversary who operates on hate and who curses and mistreats us are all things that, I will say this, that do not rise to the level of dangerous harm. See, this is where this gets to be a tricky study. This, This is where this gets to be very nuanced. And I did an article a while back, and I've got a link to it. Uh, on my website. I'll send it out in tonight's email when I send this out. But it it's on the issue of, is self-defense biblical? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, and there are a number of examples that one can go through and see where self-defense is, in fact, biblical. And so I'll flesh some of that out. But all of the things that are being described in Jesus' words here, we must understand, uh, do not rise to the level of dangerous harm. Even a slap on a cheek or stealing our clothing does not constitute a life-threatening situation that requires self-defense. So let me set forth a a few things here, and some of this is borrowed from uh, the lesson I gave here a few weeks ago on serving others, what it does not mean. And so I borrowed some of that, but I've added to it as well, because I'm always studying, I'm always thinking through issues, and of course I discuss these with Sherry, and of course then we have this discussion that opens up other other areas of uh, Scripture. But let me set forth a few things of what loving others does not mean, okay? First, it does not mean that we expose ourselves to unnecessary harm. It does not mean that we expose ourselves to unnecessary harm. Look, identifying an enemy does not mean that we have to get up close and personal with that enemy, okay? Now, there may be times where that's unavoidable, but as far as our decisions uh, uh, go, uh, we can make a choice to avoid that person. So it does not mean that we expose ourselves to unnecessary harm. I mentioned this uh, here a few weeks ago in our other lesson, that there were times when God's people actually hid from their enemies. You can think of the, um, the hundred prophets that were hidden by Obadiah, uh, whom he reveals uh, when talking to Elijah the prophet. We can think of the example in Acts chapter 9, verse 23 and 25, where it says, When many days had elapsed, excuse me, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, that is, with Paul. They sought to kill him. Now, clearly, these people would be identified as enemies. I think we could all agree that these people would be identified as enemies. And it says in verse 22, or verse 24, But their plot became known to Saul. And they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. Uh, Verse 25 tells us, But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And so it's absolutely valid to avoid harm 
when possible. So again, loving others does not mean that we have to expose ourselves to unnecessary harm. In fact, Jesus faced hostile people, uh, and we look in John 8, 59, which tells us that they picked up stones to throw at him. Now, clearly, that's an act of hostility. If somebody's going to start winging rocks at you, that's clearly an act of hostility. But the text tells us that Jesus hid himself, that he hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, let me also say that that behaving this way, first of all, everything that Jesus did with regard to other people, I think we can clearly say was done in love. And yet, even though Jesus loved these people, he went to the cross and died for them. That's how much he loved for them. And yet, he was not willing to expose himself to their, uh, to their rock-throwing behavior that day. So when they went to pick up stones to throw at him, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And the word hid there, by the way, translates the Greek word krypto. Krypto, which is the word that we bring into the English as cryptic, uh, which refers to something being veiled or hidden. So Jesus clearly uh, did not expose himself to unnecessary harm. Now later he would, see this is where it gets very interesting, because later he would, and he even uh, says in John chapter 10, he says, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And so he willingly went to the cross. He willingly exposed himself because he knew that was the Father's will, that he go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And so at that time he, he did not seek to hide himself, so he exposed himself to that injustice, uh, which God used as an opportunity to place Christ upon the cross that he might die for our sins. So again, we have an example here where Jesus hid himself. We also see where Paul was greatly hurt by a man named Alexander the coppersmith, whom he told Timothy did me much harm. Now that strikes me. That's Let me pause for just a second here because that's striking to me. Because Paul remembered the hurt. Paul remembered the hurt. And by the way, it's fine to be hurt. It's okay to be hurt. It's not okay to hate. It's okay to be hurt, but it's not okay to hate. And so uh, if you look at 2 Timothy 4.14, and one can almost imagine, because he's writing to his friend Timothy. Paul is here writing from a jail cell. He's, he's, he's in a Roman jail. Uh, he's facing trial and ultimately persecution and, and martyrdom. <clears throat> But he's, he's uh, writing to Timothy to come to him. And he imagines that Timothy, as he comes into the city, may pass by this man's shop. Uh, perhaps Alexander, the, the coppersmith, lived on a major thoroughfare. Uh, we're not sure. But Paul uh, felt, Paul was hurt by him uh, enough that not only would he recall it and write it down, but also wanted to warn Timothy so, again, Paul was greatly hurt uh, by this man named Alexander the coppersmith, whom he said did me much harm. He recalls the hurt, and he didn't just harm him, he did much harm. So, Paul was apparently deeply hurt by this man. Now, we're not given the details, except that Paul still had that in his memory. But notice the latter part of verse 14, <clears throat> and this anticipates this whole lesson this evening, where Paul says, "...the Lord will repay him according to his deeds." You see, and that's really at the heart of what we're studying this evening, because Paul did not retaliate. Paul did not seek revenge, but he simply put the matter in the Lord's hands. But even operating from that base, he tells Timothy in verse 15, he says, Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. 
so again, uh, loving others does not mean that we expose ourselves to unnecessary harm. Two, it does not mean that we trust all people. It does not mean that we trust all people. Jesus loved everyone, but he did not entrust himself to all people. There's, a, <clears throat> there's an interesting passage in John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. John chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, where it talks about how there were many who believed in his name. We're talking about believers here, who believed in his name. But then it goes on in verse 24 and tells us that Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Now that's very interesting to me, because again, clearly Jesus loved him. And and these were believers. These were people who believed in his name. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, uh, for he knew all men. So again, loving other people... Uh, does not necessarily mean that we <laughs> that we trust them, because some people are just not trustworthy. Let's be honest. Point number three: It also does not mean that we fail to rebuke others when needed. It it does not mean that we fail to rebuke others with these when when, when needed. And I'm going to use Jesus here as the example because <clears throat> again, Jesus was the perfect display of love. So what we do with his statement to love others. Uh, we can look at in the life of Christ himself with regard to how he treated other people because he was operating in love at all times. Uh, So when Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem, uh, we learn in uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51 and 52, that he passed by a village of the Samaritans. And in Luke 9, 53, it tells us that the residents of the village did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. So they turned him away. And, uh, and then Luke tells us in, in Luke 9.54 that when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down, come down from heaven and consume them? Now, James and John are referred to elsewhere in the Gospels uh, by the Greek word boanerges, boanerges, which means sons of thunder. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's quite a title. Uh, to be given to them, to be called sons of thunder. And apparently these were some pretty pretty rough and tumble guys. And uh, you can see their attitude here because they're basically saying, look, Lord, let's call down fire from heaven. Let's nuke them. Okay, let's just, let's just fry them right now, Lord. Uh, but this was a wrong attitude. This was a wrong attitude. And, and the text tells us in Luke 9.55 that Jesus turned and rebuked them. He turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. In other words, he's letting them know that they have a wrong attitude. A wrong attitude. Uh, Number four, loving others does not mean that we have to interact or befriend people who are hostile to God. It does not mean that we have to interact or befriend uh, people who are hostile to God. Uh, And you'll remember some of these from from the last lesson. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 22, uh, verses 24 and 25, where he says, Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. And then in Proverbs 20:19, he says, Do not associate with a gossip. And Proverbs 24, 21 says, Do not associate with rebels. And of course, we know uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 33 tells us that bad, that bad company or bad associations corrupts good morals. 
Another very interesting passage is over in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, where Paul described the sinful attitudes and actions of people who were committed to godlessness. And he says, but realize this, in 2 Timothy 3, 1 and following, that in the last days difficult times will come. Uh, He says, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then in the last part of verse 5 there, he, he tells Timothy, avoid such men as these. Avoid such men as these. So again, very good instruction there. And point number five, loving others, does not mean we forfeit the right to defend ourselves physically or legally uh, when we come under attack. And uh, Paul, uh, remember, who at one time took a beating with rods when he was in the city of Philippi, later used legal force to defend, hi- to defend, his, to defend himself, exercising his rights as a Roman citizen to protect him from uh, a flogging uh, that might have killed him. Uh, the floggings were very, very serious and uh, sometimes would expose nerve and even bone. They were that serious of a flogging. Uh, the Romans were very, very brutal. But you notice in Acts twenty-two twenty-five, it says, But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Now, Paul, by bringing this up, uh, basically says, Look, you haven't tried me. And if you whip me, uh, then that's going to mean serious consequences for you. In fact, it could have meant either imprisonment or death. It was that serious of a charge. And then you get down into verse 29. It says, um, therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. I imagine they did with, with the quickness. And the commander, it says, was also afraid. Um when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. And so Paul uh, did defend himself here legally. He exercised his rights as a Roman citizen. Uh, And then also in Acts 25, verse 7 through 12, where Paul was being tried and... um, and he did not feel uh, he did not feel that he was getting a fair deal. He felt that like the lower courts were not uh, dispensing true justice, and so he felt compelled to go up up the chain, and uh, and so he ultimately appealed to Caesar, which was his legal right as a Roman citizen. Again, very fascinating to think about. And so he says in verse ten, he says, "I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried." And then he says, I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also uh, well know. He says, if then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. In other words, Paul was about justice, even if it meant his own life. But he says, but if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And so these are just a few examples of what loving others does not mean, what it does not mean. Now, by wisdom, we come to know when to turn the other cheek and when to stand up and push back, as self-defense is valid if the injury rises to the level of great physical harm 
is life-threatening or threatens to harm or kill a loved one. <clears throat> and you can see my, art my article on Is Self-Defense Biblical? And I've wrestled with these things over the years because there have been times where I have been uh, persecuted mildly, not, not anything rising to the level of physical uh, harm, uh, but I've dealt with, uh, I've dealt with attacks uh, because I'm a Christian. And people have made it very clear uh, that their behavior was hostile towards me because I'm a Christian. Now, when that happens, I just simply put the matter in the Lord's hands. I just simply trust the Lord. But if I'm walking down the street with my wife and some crackhead, you know, comes running out of an alleyway and wants to assault my wife, that's not going to happen. That's, or if he wants to assault me, you know, to get to get my money, you know, if I mean, if I can get away from the situation, I will. But if I don't have an out, you know, and this guy, you know, just wants to, you know, attack me or hurt me to rob me, you know, I'm not I'm not going to let that go. I, I'm not I'm not going to let that go unaddressed. And so in those moments, I feel compelled to exercise self-defense uh, in order to neutralize the threat, uh, whatever form that takes. So there are times where, again, one must apply wisdom to the situation to be able to differentiate these moments. <clears throat> and so even though we may defend ourselves, we must never, and I'm going to be very clear on this, we must never stoop to the place of hatred towards our enemies. You can defend yourself in certain situations. Now, there are times where, where you don't have an out. I mean, think of Stephen in Acts 7. Uh, he had no way to defend himself. He had nobody to help him. And in that situation, he's about to die a martyr's death. And he died very well. And God gave him dying grace. God, God granted him a special grace to deal with that situation. And I think that's true for all believers who face those situations. I think, I think God gives us dying grace so that we can die well in those particular moments. And Stephen did very, very well. And if you look at the passage in Acts 7, it's really quite amazing because he even prayed for his attackers. And the words that Stephen uttered were very reminiscent of the words of Jesus on the cross, uh, who prayed for those who, who were mocking him, who had crucified him. And, he, and Jesus himself said, Father, you know, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And so Stephen's words were, were very reminiscent of the words of Christ, and so, you know, in those situations where we don't have a way out, I think God gives us dying grace. So even though we may defend ourselves um, in certain situations, we must never stoop to the place of hatred toward our enemies, but must always maintain love for them and be willing to forgive and help uh, if or when possible. So let's unpack this a little bit. Now, as Jesus' disciples, we are told to love our enemies, do good to those who hate us, bless those who curse us, and pray for those who mistreat us. Now, when I was looking at this in the Greek, and I've given you the words here, all four of Jesus' directives in this case are in the imperative mood. In the imperative mood. Now, the imperative mood is the mood of command. And as I've mentioned in other lessons, there are three things about the imperative mood uh, that come out of that. One is that it assumes intellectual capacity, that you have the ability to understand the directive. Two, it, assu it assumes volitional capacity, that you have the ability to obey the directive. And three, it assumes present and or future opportunity because, again, you cannot command past action. So all four of Jesus' directives, again, are in the imperative mood, which means that they are commands to be understood and obeyed. 
To love our enemies means we care about them <clears throat> and seek God's best in their life. And I've said this before, uh, when we think of love, when we think of agape love, the highest form of love, it's really about commitment. It's really about being committed to, to the best interests of other people. It's not about feelings. In fact, there are many times when it's actually contrary to feelings because we're not asked to conjure up a warm, fuzzy feeling uh, for the person who is out to hurt us, but we are told to love them. By the way, uh, this would actually be a form of virtue love. Virtue love. It is a love that is born out of the individual because that person chooses to love and not, not because of the beauty or the worth of the object by any means. So, to love our enemies means that we care about them and that we seek God's best in their life. To do good to those who hate us means that we are kind and giving when possible, that we treat them with kindness. In fact, I think of the a passage that I've cited many times before, uh, which has really become in many ways a life verse for me, a very important passage that helps guide me in many ways, and it's 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 which says that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will." So that very much directs my behavior, my, my attitude, my words, my actions, when I am dealing uh, with people that are hostile to God and to, and to myself. So to bless our enemies means that we wish them well rather than harm. To pray for our enemy means that we ask God to save and to bless them, even though they seek to mistreat us. And love manifests itself by doing good, blessing, and praying for those who hate us. <clears throat> Let me be very clear. This is not mere passivity. This is not mere passivity, but requires great discipline of the mind and the will, which can be contrary to our emotions. Let me say that again. This is not mere passivity, but requires great discipline of the mind and the will, which can be contrary to our emotions. Uh, nor does such behavior imply weakness on our part. Such behavior does not imply weakness on our part. In fact, when I thought about it, because that's how some might perceive that, but that's not the case. And think of Jesus. Jesus is the theanthropic person. He is the God-man. Okay? Now, as God, he is omniscient, he's omnipotent, omnipresent, righteous, just, sovereign, immutable, has veracity, eternal life, uh, goodness, mercy, kindness. I mean, he has all the attributes that belong to God, okay? But to think to, and to understand that he is omnipotent means that he is able to do all that he desires. And of course, as God, he's the one that created the universe. He created the universe, he created the earth, and all that is in it <clears throat> that is good. And so, it's not for want of power uh, when we see Jesus restraining his power, okay? So Jesus, the theanthropic person, possessed all power sufficient to destroy his enemies, yet he restrained his power for the sake of love and grace. He restrained his power for the sake of love and grace. 
And, uh, and so divine truth, <clears throat> when we think about this, and not feelings, again, let me be very clear here, divine truth and not feelings must be what guides our thoughts, words, and actions. And too many people operate on the basis of feelings. And I confess there are times where I have reacted in some situations because I let my emotions get away from me and I chose to operate on emotion rather than wisdom. Uh, but that's, that's not how we are to operate. Now, I love my feelings and my feelings are very uh, enjoyable. I like them. Uh, they can get a little hot at times because uh, when there's a perceived injustice, uh, when somebody does me wrong, I'm hurt. And uh, nobody likes to deal with that. Or if you lose a loved one, you can deal with grief. And of course, that's difficult. Uh, and I like my feelings very much, but I, sh- I cannot... I, biblically, I am to be directed by wisdom. That is how I am to operate in this world. So again, divine truth and not feelings must be what guides our thoughts, our words, and our actions. I have some quotes here. One is from Joel Green. He says, quote, love is expressed in doing good, that is, not by passivity in the face of opposition, but in proactivity, doing good, blessing, praying, and offering the second cheek and the shirt along with the coat, end quote. And of course, Paul, when writing to Christians in Rome, used similar language in Romans twelve fourteen, when he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Again, bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse. As Christians, when we think and act this way, we are actually acting uh, like God himself. So we are like the sons of the Most High, Luke 6.35 tells us, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. By the way, God is kind because of who he is and not because of the beauty or the worth of the object. Let me say that again. God is kind because of who he is and not because of the beauty or the worth of the object. And this is absolutely true for us. When we are advancing to spiritual maturity, when we are growing spiritually and operating by divine truth, when we are learning God's word and living God's word by faith, when that becomes what guides us in our walk with the Lord and how we operate in this world, um, then in that sense, we are operating on virtue love. We are operating on virtue love. And again, that is a love that is born out of the individual, and we love because we choose to love and not because of the beauty or worth of the object. And this is, this is how God loves himself. So again, as Christians, when we think and act this way, we are like, we are like the sons of the Most High. Again, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. <clears throat> for us, this is accomplished by faith and not feelings. R.C. Sproul is correct when he states, quote, We may not be able to control how we feel about them, but we certainly can control what we do about those feelings, end quote. And he's absolutely right on that. So the first thing has to do with loving our enemies. Now, that's the positive action. So let's look at the negative sides here. So there is a negative directive in which we are not to retaliate. See, now this is where it gets into uh, something that is contrary to the world system. So there is a negative directive in which we are not to retaliate or seek personal revenge. 
this is actually the words of the Lord here in uh, Luke 19, 18, in which he says, You shall not take vengeance, uh, nor bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So again, do not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. I think of love in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul makes it clear. He says, uh, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. In other words, it doesn't keep a record of wrongdoings so that they can be brought up as a leverage point to be used against that person. Okay? And uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, the Apostle Paul said, See that no one repays another with evil for evil. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And of course, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.8.9, he says, All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 17.13, he says, He who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. And in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22, he says, uh, he, he went on, he, at another point, he says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. So again, Proverbs 20, 22, do not say, I will repay evil. In other words, don't take the matter into your own hands. See, this is where we have to, by faith, trust the Lord. We have to put it into his hands. So when we're mistreated, when somebody treats us in an evil way, we do not reciprocate. We do not react. That is, that we don't act uh, in the same kind as the way that we are treated. Now, concerning this verse in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22, I have a quote from Dr. Alan Ross from his three-volume commentary set on Psalms, which is a fabulous commentary set. But Dr. Alan Ross says, quote, Leave retribution to the Lord. Let him bring about a just deliverance. The righteous should not take vengeance on evil, for only God can repay justly, end quote. And Bruce Waltke, in his commentary on Proverbs, says, quote, uh, This verse suggests that the Lord will help the disciple by compensating him justly for the wrong done to him. The helper, that is God, will both compensate the damage and punish the wrongdoer, end quote. And then I have another quote here by uh, Dr. David Hubbard, <clears throat> He's, and this is a little bit of a longer quote, but I thought it was really good, so I included it. He says, quote, Vengeance is an activity too hot for any of us to handle. Its motivation is selfish. Its execution is usually extreme. Its result is to accelerate conflict, not to slow it down. In short, vengeance is God's business, not ours. All human sin is sin against God. So he is the ultimate victim. Only he can judge accurately the damage done. Only he can distribute fairly the blame. Only he can exact freely the proper penalty. We are not entitled to play God at any time. End quote. So the challenge for us is when we are mistreated is to put the offense in God's hands, trusting that he sees 
and that he will dispense justice in his time and in his way. For this reason, the scripture tells us, like in Romans 12, 17 through 19, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And he closes out, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room for the wrath of God. And you see this in other places. You see it like in 32 Deuteronomy 32:35 where God says vengeance is mine and retribution. Hebrews 10:30 for we know him who said vengeance is mine I will repay. Uh, again, very clearly God directs the believer, God directs the believer to let him dispense justice. Uh, but again, as I've said several times and I'll say it again because I'm kind of a broken record this way, This requires discipline of mind and will. It requires discipline of mind and will and is executed again by faith, not feelings. This is the Christian walk because we are to walk by faith. Uh, Hebrews 10.38, God says, But my righteous one shall live by faith. And Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please him. When we operate on the basis of faith, when we learn God's word and we are walking in obedience to his word, that pleases him. And, and we are advancing um, in, into maturity, which is where God wants us to be. So we don't seek revenge. Third, third, we place the matter in the Lord's hands. And again, we let him dispense justice in his time and way. Uh, Genesis 18.25 teaches us that God is the judge of all the earth. He is the judge of all the earth. And this is a context here, if you go back to the Genesis 18, is where God has told Abram that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, <clears throat> and he's concerned because his nephew Lot and company are down there. And so Abraham begins to, <laughs> he begins to argue with God. Uh, he's, he's pretty bold, actually. He says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Even Abraham says, hey, wait a minute, God, that, that's, not, that's, not, that's not justice. And then he says to God, he says, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So again, very fascinating statement, but he, but he puts the question to God, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And, uh, and then he gets into this um, um, a negotiation where he talks him down from he talks him from fifty down to ten because maybe he's thinking Lot, his wife, three sons, three daughters, and you know other family that may be there. Apparently there weren't even ten because God went ahead and destroyed the city anyway. But I love that statement there where he describes God as judge of all the earth, all the earth. God is judge of all the earth, and he judges his people. He judges the nations of the world. He judges individuals. God is, in fact, the judge of all the earth. Uh, And so he dispenses justice upon those who deserve it. And so nobody gets away with anything. Nobody gets away with anything. And uh, Psalm 94.1 describes the Lord as a God of vengeance and uh, and that he will punish the wicked. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that, quote, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Uh, And then God told the Israelites 
in Exodus 23:22, he said uh, he said that if they listen to his voice, that is if they obey him. Notice what he says. He says, "Then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries." So, if God's people would listen to him and obey him, become obedient to the word believers, then in effect God will take up the fight. God will take up the fight. He says, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And of course, Paul, after instructing Christians not to seek their own revenge in Romans chapter 12, uh, went on to explain uh, that God will handle the matter. And he says in Romans 12, 19, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, a very, very straightforward passage where Paul says, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Again, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And as I mentioned earlier in 2 Timothy 4.14, that even Paul did not seek his own revenge when hurt by Alexander the coppersmith, but said the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And Warren Wiersbe, whom I love very much, he passed away a few years ago, uh, but his books are fabulous. If you can ever get his books, his commentaries, they're, they're very, very good. Uh, Warren Wearsby says, quote, The word vengeance must not be confused with revenge. The purpose of vengeance is to satisfy God's holy law. The purpose of revenge is to pacify a personal grudge, end quote. And he's absolutely correct. Now, let me chase a, a side note here, because, again, this is a very nuanced subject here. Um, it, when, we, when we put the matter in the Lord's hands... We must realize, and again, that God will dispense justice in his time and in his way. And there are times that God may extend grace to his enemies and even, excuse me, to those who hurt us. And this because he gives them time to repent and to turn to him for forgiveness. Uh, And we must always remember also that at one time we were God's enemies that we were God's enemies and terrible sinners before we came to faith in Christ. But remember that God waited patiently for us, that he waited patiently for us. So if God delays judgment, if he, if he, if he holds off on that for a little bit, he has his reasons. Again, this is where we trust the Lord, that he will dispense justice in his time and his way. And remember 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. But, as I've said in other lessons, God's grace does not last forever. At death, all of life's decisions are fixed, and what the unbeliever does with Christ in time determines his eternal destiny. If a person goes his entire life rejecting God's grace, not believing in Christ as Savior, then that person will stand before God at the great white throne judgment and then afterwards be cast into the lake of fire. That is the eternal destiny of such a one. And of course, it is at that time, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 tells us, that God will deal out retribution to those who do not know God, 
to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Quoting Warren Wearsby again, he says, quote, Certainly the wicked who persecute the godly do not always receive their just payment in this life. In fact, the apparent prosperity of the wicked and the difficulty of the godly have posed a problem for many of God's people. And he cites Psalm 73, which is a very, very good psalm on that subject, and I would recommend reading that. Wearsby goes on, he says, Why live a godly life? if your only experience is that of suffering. He says, as Christians, we must live for eternity and not just for the present, end quote. And he's absolutely correct. We must live for eternity and not just for the present. And so we look upwards to God. We look to the Lord. We trust him. We live by faith. We follow his directives and we let him dispense justice in his time and in his way. And he will. God is faithful. Fourth, let's go on with this. If we fail to follow the Lord's directives to love, to do good, to bless, and to pray for our enemies, and instead, if we take, them, uh, take matters into our own hands and we seek revenge, that is sin. And at that moment, we are actually sinning against God and we open ourselves up to divine discipline. We open up ourselves to divine discipline. And so the very punishment that we may seek to inflict upon our enemies may in fact be administered to us by the Lord, and this because we are walking by sinful values rather than being obedient to the word believers. So it may boomerang on us, it may, it may come back upon us, uh, because the Lord will deal with us as his children. <clears throat> However, again to drive the point, if we put the matter in the Lord's hands, and let him dispense justice in his time and way, we can rest assured that he will bring it to pass. Again, Romans 12, 19. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then again, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, that it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So don't take, don't take the matter into your own hands. If you seek revenge... If you choose to operate by worldly values, if, that's, if that becomes your, your, your uh, operating uh, uh, protocols, uh, then at that moment you place yourself outside the will of God, and at that moment you are then subject to divine discipline. And that's, that's no good. Uh, I've dealt with divine discipline before. It's not fun. <laughs> I think of the psalm, I think it's Psalm 119, verse 71. Psalm 119, verse 71 where the psalmist says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And there were times where I've had to, I've had to say that myself. Um, and because the Lord will discipline his children. Remember Hebrews twelve six: He whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Um, so it's best to just simply put the matter in the Lord's hands, uh, and just follow his orders. So plus, when we learn and live uh, God's word by faith, uh, it really frees us from the tyranny of hurt feelings, which can be fatiguing to the mind and toxic to the soul. Let me say that again. When we learn to live God's word by faith, it actually frees us from the tyranny of hurt feelings, which can be fatiguing to the mind and 
and toxic to the soul. So let me close this out with a summary statement here, and then we'll take some questions or comments if we have any. Because again, this is a very nuanced subject, and there are aspects of this that I've tried to incorporate into this as to what it does not mean. But again, and, and I probably have not hit it all. I mean, I may have just, you know, uh, covered certain points, but you might be able to think of other passages as well. So in closing, we are to obey the words of Jesus, who tells us to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Assuming the hostility, assuming that the hostility that we experience never rises to the level of requiring self-defense, again, which itself does not negate loving the attacker, uh, we are to tolerate the hostility and abuse and respond in love by doing good, blessing, and praying for our enemies. As I mentioned earlier, it's okay to be hurt, but not to hate. It's okay to be hurt, but not to hate. I would even say it's okay to be angry. In fact, there's a wonderful passage in Ephesians where Paul says, Be angry and sin not. Be angry and sin not. But then he tells you, Do not let the sun set on your anger. So he's putting restraints on it. In other words, deal with your anger, but don't, but don't let it go beyond the day. Deal with it. Deal with it. Do not let the sun set on your anger. Okay? So it's okay to be hurt, and we might even say angry, but it is never okay to hate. We are never, never called to hate as Christians. Operating from divine viewpoint, we walk by faith and we trust God to handle the matter. Knowing, again, as Genesis 18.25 tells us, that he is the judge of all the earth and that it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. As God himself states, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In this way, and I'm going to close out with this passage in 1 Peter 2.23, we follow the example set by Jesus himself. And in 1 Peter 2.23 it says, While being reviled, uh, and this speaks of Jesus when he was dealing with the the persecution of the cross, uh, the mockings, the beatings, the scourging, the crucifixion. Uh, Peter tells us that while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. But what? But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, that is to the Father. So if we live as God directs, abiding by the royal family honor code, which is how we are to conduct ourselves because we are children of God, we are brothers and sisters to the King of kings and Lord of lords, we are part of the royal family of God, and uh, we are to conduct ourselves according to the royal family honor code as God's word directs us with regard to our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Too often we come into the Christian life And uh, we don't really take that seriously, or we don't really understand our relationship to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, And so we have more of a peasant's mindset uh, than that of uh, those who are part of the royal family of God. So we have to be brought up to speed. We have to understand what our marching orders are. What are the protocols that God expects us to abide by? And so if we live as God directs, abiding by the royal family honor code, then he will dispense justice upon our attackers, again, in his time and way. 
And the challenge for us is to discipline ourselves to learn God's word and to live by faith, not our hurt feelings or circumstances. Now, that will close out this lesson, <laughs> and it may have raised some questions. It may have answered some, uh, some stuff in your thinking, but it may have raised some other questions as well. So let me go ahead and back out of this and see if you have any questions about tonight's study. If you do, you'll have to take, you'll have to take uh, the mute button off in order to uh, pose your question. Uh, do I have questions from anybody this evening? Dan. I just wanted to uh, experiment with the raising of the hand function. Oh, okay. Zoom. So uh, okay. Zoom has a function where down at the bottom uh, you can raise your hand if you have questions or comments, folks. So uh, it's a neat little addition they added to it. So, But thank you so much for this lesson, Steve. Oh, yeah. Glad, glad to cover it. Glad to cover it. Stephanie has a question or a comment. Some thoughts as you were reading, you know, how you were talking about, and it is one of my, my favorite scriptures, how Jesus, he didn't entrust himself to people because he knew them. Like, he knew their hearts, he knew their thoughts. Yeah. You know, very, <clears throat> God, you know, and in our sense, we don't intimately know the thoughts, you know, or the heart of people the way that God does. And so, in our Christian walk, you know, thank God for his grace, I think that you know, that's something that definitely takes a day-by-day a -day, um, humility and growing, not knowing other people's thoughts or their hearts, um, and still finding that I trust them, but I don't trust them balance, you know, um, using mm. wisdom. Right. Yes. Trusting and not trusting. I think of it as concentric circles. Uh, yeah. You know, there are people that are very, very close to me. My wife, obviously, we've been, we've been married for 32 plus. She's very close to me. I have other Christian people that are in my life, friends like you and others, that are very close. And so there's a, there's a closeness there and a level of... Now, does that mean that I'm not going to be hurt? Of course not. You know, I'm not a perfect spouse, neither is my wife. Uh, nobody is. Uh, but when I think about people that, that are part of that inner circle... Uh, then I begin to move out from that with concentric circles. And it has to do with people that I trust and uh, people that I will let in very close to me and other people, you know, are a little more of a distance. So, but I do find it interesting too, that passage where it says that even though you had many who believed in him, Jesus himself was not entrusting himself to them because he knew, he knew what was in their heart. And I, and I just, I find that very interesting. But again, he loved them. So, again, loving does not mean necessarily entrusting yourself to everybody. So, again, one has to think through these things biblically, um, you know, and to incorporate that into, into how we address some of these issues. So, it was a good comment, Stephanie. Did you have another? Yeah, I had another. <laughs> you already knew. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had another thought, of, you know, as far as the, the revenge versus vengeance. And then I, I think that as, as a person, both would be for for me you know for humanity neither would be something um ben revenge coming from a sinful place but vengeance also coming from you know like you had written like a holy place and so even though you know we're holy as lord's holy because of the spirit in us mm -hmm. in and of ourselves you know um if, if we like we spoke before if you if you asked everybody you know was running a red light wrong you know, you'd have different answers. Mm -hmm. Or is you know, 
robbing a bank wrong, well, you'd have different answers, you know, from humanity. Mm-hmm. But God can perfectly decide, um, you know, what vengeance, if any, mercy, you know, to put out there for whatever wrongdoings for everybody. But when it comes to us, we couldn't necessarily do that because of our own bias, our own experiences, mm-hmm. our own sin nature. <laughs> and so I was just thinking that both really we have no place in. Right. You know, well, and see, and this is where putting the matter in the Lord's hands really becomes the issue. And I think of when David had his affair with Bathsheba and then uh, coordinated to have her husband Uriah murdered. Uh, and remember that under the Mosaic Law, there were 613 commands and roughly 15 of them warranted the death penalty. And that right there tells you that not all violations of law are equally egregious, that some are more egregious than others. And so out of the 613 commands in the Mosaic Law, 15 warranted the death penalty. Adultery and murder both warranted the death penalty. And David was guilty of both. And just because he was a king did not exempt him from that. And so when Nathan the prophet came and approached David, uh, and he did it in a very, very clever way, he drew David in with a story of a rich man and a poor man and, you know, the story of lambs, which would have resonated with David because, remember, he was a shepherd, and, and that, would have, that would have spoken to his heart because that was a very sensitive thing to him. But when Nathan finally confronted David and said, look, you're the man, you, you are the one who is guilty of, uh, of, uh, of adultery and murder. And David, I love it, he, it's one of the marks of maturity. He immediately owned it. He didn't try to explain it away. He didn't try to deny it. He didn't try to excuse it. He just simply said, I confess. He immediately owned it. And, and Nathan immediately told David, you will not die. Now, David had punishment. There was punishment that came upon him. Uh, the, the child that Bathsheba was, um, was bearing uh, died. And uh, after birth, and that child was, of course, immediately graduated to heaven. And uh, but David, there was a discipline that came upon them, and a discipline that came upon uh, David afterwards. But God gave David a reduced sentence, and so God, who gives the law and prescribes punishment for law, because God is a God of righteousness, He is a God of justice, but He's also a God of mercy. And when David demonstrated humility before the Lord. Uh, coming before his throne and confessing his sin, God saw that, and God gave David a reduced sentence. And so, even though the law prescribed the death penalty, both for adultery and murder, and David was guilty of both, God gave him a reduced sentence, and that's why Nathan said, you will not die, but then went on to pronounce judgment in another form. So again, that's one of those things where, where, you know, God... God is the judge of all the earth, and we just simply have to trust that he knows the heart. And just as we were at one time hostile and enemies of God, uh, there were times that obviously he gave us grace, and he gave us time to, to come to him. And so we must trust that he's doing the same with others. Uh, so again, it's just it becomes an issue of knowing uh, how we are to treat our enemies, and that we trust that God will handle the matter in his time and his way. And an opportunity for growth for us. <laughs> uh, yes, an opportunity for growth. What do, they, what do they say? You can't have a testimony without a test, right? Uh, and so we have those opportunities. We have those tests in life. And they become opportunities to grow. They become opportunities for us to shine uh, when we are confronted with those situations. So <clears throat> anyway, good, good comment, Stephanie. 
Did you have any other, or does anybody else have any? I think we're all good, Steve. Okay. Well, thank you all for joining in this evening. I will uh, get this uploaded to the podcast channel here in a little bit. If you will uh, bow your heads with me, we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll close it out. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you Father, having trusted in your Son as our Savior. And we are thankful that we can come before your throne of grace, as Hebrews 4.16 tells us it is. It's not a throne of judgment. It is, in fact, a throne of grace. And Father, we are so thankful for that. And we are thankful that we can gather together this evening, that we can take this time and be good stewards of the resources that you've given to us, that we might gather together to study your word, uh, to understand it more fully. And Father, uh, we just pray as we go forth this evening that we will be challenged by this, uh, by this study. Uh, it may not have answered every question, uh, but Father, I, I hope that tonight's study has been fruitful enough to at least set forth the clear understanding of what our directives are and uh, how we are to trust you uh, with regard to handling justice in this life, especially with regard to those who mistreat us. Father, we pray that we will be challenged by these things, that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen.